0: Being the Worst, episode 38, recorded Thursday, January 30th, 2014. From BeingTheWorst.com, it's the Being the Worst Podcast Audio Apprenticeships for the Aspiring Software Craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdullah. In this episode, Carrie and Renat welcome guest Glenn Block to discuss hypermedia web APIs and the new book he co-authored on the subject. They get into some of the differences between systems that are designed to take advantage of the constraints of the REST architectural style with those that are not. What is hypermedia? Should you always adhere to REST constraints and use hypermedia when building a web API? What are some of the ways to implement these concepts on the client and server, and how do they interact? What are some common implementation mistakes? API security? What can your book help me with? You see what? What? And much more. Now, let's get started with Carrie, Glenn, and Renat. Okay, Renat, we're back here, and it's our second guest ever, so uh, we don't do this too often, but fortunately, we've had two good ones. We had Greg Young way back when, and today we have with us Glenn Block, which will be really cool. You may have heard of uh, Glenn before. He's been on .NET Rocks and uh, various other podcasts, Harding Code. I'll throw out the keyword alt.net, code better. meth, web API, Node.js on Azure, open source podcast conferences, Splunk. Google it if you don't know what it is. I'm assuming most of you have already heard of Glenn. Does does that work for you, Glenn?
1: You know, I need to use that. I'm going to like need to record you and use (laughs) that for my other podcasts because that is like a much more uh, refined version of the intro. (laughs) But yes, it's
0: good. I'll send you the audio snippet and you can just hand it out uh, at all the uh, other engagements that you have. So. So today, guys, uh, I'm excited because we have a balance here, uh, as usual, with uh, I will be representing the worst guy on the call as it relates to uh, programming knowledge in this space. Uh, Glenn's got a new book coming out with a group of other guys, uh, Designing Evolvable Web APIs with ASP.net from O'Reilly. And I think it's coming out in March, right, Glenn?
1: That's the current ship date. And we're finally in the end game, so it should not change.
0: That's awesome. Uh, I look forward to that. And we'll be getting it as soon as it's out. We are going to be talking about a little bit about what's going on in that. I was hoping that we can get into, you know, you guys have seen Renat blogging lately at the stuff he's been doing at Happy Pancake. You know what we've done in the past episodes as it relates to aggregates with event sourcing and Greg Young's event store and all that kind of stuff. And Renat and I were talking about the design of web APIs and using service stack and the other things that are out there. And uh, today we're going to get into with Renat what you've been experiencing over at Happy Pancake and comparing Mm -hmm. and contrasting a little bit with uh, web API and all the The other stuff that Glenn's been doing with Node and HTTP land. Sound good? Yep, there. Before we jump into the details, I just want to level set a little bit. So Glenn, when we're talking about, in my mind, you could either be speaking about web API in a generic term or actually the product from Microsoft. So when we're talking about web APIs today, how should I think about like, what's the definition as an HTTP thing or what?
1: You know, it's it's really tough because we tried to, it's definitely HTTP. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. But then some people would say, well, soap services are HTTP. (laughs) So I really danced around this in the book, because I was trying to distinguish like what makes a web API, when we say web API, what do we mean? It's not enough to say that it's HTTP, it is definitely an API that is exposed over HTTP. So API is a application programmatic interface, so it's a way to interact with a system over HTTP. What I further refine it to be, to distinguish it between, say, a SOAP service, is that it has to be a service which is easily accessible to a very broad range of HTTP clients, including devices, including curl. And this is the kind of thing that kind of immediately knocks SOAP out of the box. I can't access a SOAP service simply by dropping a URL in the browser. Why? Because generally SOAP services are all using a single HTTP method of post. Whereas when I go into the browser bar and I type a URL in like yahoo.com, that's doing a get. That's the first problem. Uh The second problem is even if I could access it, the result that I get back is not very friendly. It really requires a SOAP stack on the client side to be able to parse the result. Now it's XML encoded in a soap envelope. XML in general can be expensive, but once you add in the semantics of soap, it's no longer easy for me to do this, right, from a browser or from a mobile device for that matter. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the way we like to define it. We being like the authors of the book, and I think it's just a customary definition, is the fact that I even like to use browser-friendly because I think that alone brings in a whole bunch of factors um, that really correlate with web APIs. You know, the other thing is web APIs often will take advantage of things like query strings. And and these are things that you couldn't really leverage with SOAP services because a SOAP service is fundamentally using... It it can be message-based or it can be RPC, where it's like a remote procedure call. Uh But in either case, it's tunneling a bunch of semantics on top of http rather than just taking advantage of raw http
0: i see i think a lot of those advantages that you're referring to there is what Renat has said in the past of why he using http approach now is because he's he's able to use like you said simple browsers uh, fiddler all the existing http ecosystem to troubleshoot and build it all just works there's no special stuff
1: right and it goes deeper than that you cut off a whole bunch of things for example um, there's a lot of infrastructure built into the web, essentially, uh-huh. and HTTP around caching. But that infrastructure, like using e-tags, it's only available to you if you're doing gets. Because the idea is that if you read the HTTP spec, a resource that exposes itself over get, that get method has to be item potent and safe, meaning that I can make that call as many times as I want, and it's not going to result in any side effects at least from the client perspective. But post, it's like all bets are off. There is no caching or anything like that unless you were to layer caching into some custom thing. But then the rest of the web infrastructure doesn't know about it. So going back to your point, I think that's another key aspect is the fact that when you're building web APIs, they just work and can fully leverage all of the infrastructure, all the intermediaries and things that are existing out on the web.
2: Cool. Lynn, I got the perception that basically you're favoring get requests over uh, posts, heads, or other types of requests.
1: That's not exactly what I'm saying. So I am fully supportive of get, put, post, delete, all the methods that are available. Um, there's nothing wrong with using them. I think, though, that caching is a big part of how the web was constructed. And if you look at the number of requests that happen across the web, it's like, of requests across the web are GET. So that means that if you're leveraging caching, there's a lot of benefit there. But no, I certainly am of the opinion that, hey, you know, put has semantics, delete has semantics. You should use each of the methods for what they're for. I just think GET is the most popular one. And that's why there's been a lot of debate in kind of the HTTP community of browsers, for example. Should browsers support more than GET or post. And the argument that often comes back is like get and post are actually sufficient. Like you can do everything you can do delete through post, you can do update through post, you can do whatever you want. And you can still do get and have caching. But there's others that say, well, no, browsers really should support all the HTTP methods. Because today, what people end up doing is they tunnel using custom headers, like, you know, you want to do a put request, from a browser, and a browser doesn't know how to do put, so you end up using, you know, if you're doing it from a form, for example, you end up doing like an HTTP uh, method override header, mm-hmm. which means I send a post, but I tell the server, well, really what I'm doing is a put. Mm-hmm. But no, I have no opposition to using the other methods, if, if that's how I get more.
0: Renat, <laughs> in your experience, are you using tons of gets as well, or...? Yes, absolutely. And
2: basically, in most of the systems we're building, I guess everybody is building. Mm-hmm. There is a far overreaching number of uh, get requests or read operations as opposed to any commands that are sent from the client side to the server. Mm-hmm. And especially, for example, in social service. Yep. Since, uh, if you're using web infrastructure and playing with uh, HTTP rules, making that sure that your requests, for example, are cacheable, you're using proper cache headers, uh, other cache expirations, e tags, whatever. It just helps to scale out your system early easily simply by leveraging like this uh, existing internet topology.
1: Yeah, it's more than just gets for caching. It's also things like concurrency. Like e tags allowed me to do something where I get a snapshot of some data and then, you know, I make an edit to that data. And in the meanwhile, somebody else did an update and I can actually see that. You know what? That update that I'm trying to do is, is actually, you know, the, the state of the resource that I'm trying to update has already been changed. And those are things you just get for free just by following the rules. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the rules, so uh, what is your take
2: on following REST API constraints while evolving web APIs? How far do you go there?
1: <laughs> As far as I need to. That's the simplest way to drive it. I think early on, you know, Carrie and I were talking about this earlier on, you know, like I've been into the REST space now probably for like four years. And you go through this period of education. You learn, you know, what is it really? You know, initially, I think prior to that, the only thing I knew about REST was, you know, I knew this guy, Sebastian Lamla from Alt.net, who had this framework called Open Rasta. And I I knew that REST services from work I had done, I thought of them as it's not soap, and I can do it in a browser. But it's way more than that. So here's the first thing I would say. I don't think REST is for everyone. I don't think every service has to be RESTful. I think that REST, if you follow all the constraints, you can achieve something. And, you know, when you look at Roy Fielding's dissertation on network architecture, like people call it the REST Dissertation. It's actually not the rest dissertation. It's a dissertation on how the web was built, basically. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, he's basically saying, like, look, this is how we built this. And this is why. And we want to have like huge systems that can last for a very long time that can change in a way that doesn't break clients, that can evolve, can do all these other kinds of things. And so I think if you build a restful system, you do get those benefits. But is it necessary to do that? Or should that be where your eye is on the prize? No. Should you do it just because you you could do it? No. Um, And so where I've become more focused on and where our book focuses on is like, look, there's things you can do to help you to build an evolvable system. And these things probably are on the pathway toward rest, but don't worry about the rest term, you know, like hypermedia, for example, we, we, Mm. we promote that pretty heavily in the book. And we talk about why it's beneficial. And we're not saying like you have to build a system that is hypermedia based, but we're also saying that you can build a system that's hypermedia based without getting caught up on if you're following every single constraint And then what we really try to do is just paint the picture of saying, like, this is the benefit that Hypermedia will provide for you. And this is how you can build a system that uses it. And your mileage may vary. So my answer for rest, your mileage may vary. I don't focus on rest anymore. What I still have a problem with is the way it gets distorted. But it's kind of like that boat has shipped. Like, I think it's it's one thing to say that every service needs to be restful. It's another thing to just water down the definition and say it's all rest, which basically means that rest means nothing. And I don't believe that. I think it has a very specific meaning and a very specific set of constraints. But whether you adhere to them or not, I, you know, personally, I don't care. I mean, meet your business requirements. But I prefer to keep terms what they are and not kind of distort them and say, yeah, this is kind of rest or this is, you know, low rest or high rest or whatever. It's like, no, it's an approach. Yes, there are different approaches to do things. And, you know, it's an architectural style and don't water it down. But if you don't want to use it or if you don't need to, then don't. That's exactly where I'm at. So which of the rest constraints do
2: you find yourself actually using with success in production while designing evolvable APIs?
1: Well, caching, absolutely. It's a tough question to ask me because like, again, I don't do REST for REST's sake, but the things I look at, like I think discoverability, decoupling clients. You know, the thing that really attracted me when I started to learn about REST like four years ago and really learned what it was about and where the whole evolvability term comes in is this idea that instead of clients being hard-coded and now like when the server changes, the clients break, which is notorious in the soap world. That, you know, you can design clients in a way that they are discovering what's available. Now, that doesn't mean that it's like some, and I've described this before, some artificial intelligence client that just, you know, magically says, oh, there's something new. I think I'll try that. (laughs) It's not that but it's more that the client is looking for things that it expects to find that the server's offering it, and then it's relying on the server to provide it the way to get to that thing, which is really where the links come in, um, or even providing things like forms that says, hey, if you want to do this updatable thing, here's, here's a way to travel through that. It's guiding the client. So I'm a big fan of that. So I would say caching, hypermedia, Media types have been a big thing for me because it's like mm-hmm. REST or, or, you know, REST is not about removing any sort of coupling. It centralizes that coupling. It says, hey, let's couple on the message format. Let's not mm-hmm. couple on URIs and systems. Let's couple on a messaging format. And it does that through this usage of things called media types. So that's been another big area that I focused on, which attaches really to discoverability. The idea that if your server can return information that says, hey, this thing that I'm giving you, it's not just a blob of JSON. It actually has a meaning. There's some semantic value associated with it. And you can find that by either looking up this media type or, you know, now with the existence of profiles, I can give you an existing media type that's just JSON, But I can give you some other information that says, yeah, it's JSON, but it really is, you know, an order system JSON. And here's the details of where you can find out what that is. I think that's really valuable, giving clients more information that keeps them as decoupled as possible from, you know, just – and also removes this out-of-band knowledge, which is kind of like the server and the client wink at each other. That's a joke, Mm -hmm. but – There's no real solid contract or agreement. I think media types create a more solidified agreement. So I'm a big fan of media types as well. But again, your mileage may vary. Like if I'm building an internal system, do I really need to build that media type? I probably won't do it. You know, maybe some of the people in the rest community will hate me for it. I probably won't do it. But if I'm building something that's going to be exposed to a broad number of consumers, then I will seriously think about at least – using a profile because profiles are so lightweight. I mean, a profile can be whatever you want it to be. All you have to do is have either an additional header, you know, like that you pass back to the client or possibly something embedded in the payload that says, you know, this is a profile and this describes what this thing is. Mm -hmm. But publishing through IANA is not a lightweight process. And I feel like if I'm doing something that's just kind of internal for my company or where I'm not expecting third parties to access my API other than through the clients that I provide them. In those cases, I probably would not try to publish any kind of media type or anything because it's just an implementation detail. And as far as using hypermedia, I think again, your mileage may vary now. And I think we're not, you'll know, admit this as well. Like once you start to see the value in a thing, it's not always like can I get away with not doing it? You may say like for me, I see the general value of hypermedia, so I promote it. I don't see it hurting anything. But if I talk to somebody and they say, "Hey, I'm building an API, but you know I'm not really getting this hypermedia thing," I'm going to have a conversation with them, right? And I'll explain to them what I think the benefits are. But I'm not going to like, well, I'm not going to you know talk to you or help you because you're not going to use hypermedia. So that's basically where I'm at. Absolutely. So basically, picking
2: the design constraints which make sense when they're justified. Yes,
1: that's why I said your mileage may vary. You know that that that's really the way I think about it.
0: And on the evolvable side, I mean, I'm assuming that was related to the decoupling you spoke of, where the server can evolve and change without breaking clients, and the yep. the client continues to work. So. When you first mentioned that, I heard you discuss that on another podcast a couple years ago, and I was really excited about it because I I'd spent many, many years on the integration side of things, and we had that same problem where we had systems in hospitals, and we had to worry about when the hub would change, clients would break, and we have thousands of servers in the field, and what are we going to do? So I'm like, oh, this sounds really great. How am I going to evolve this? And what I think what I hope that maybe the book gets into a little bit is, I wasn't quite sure, other than understanding uh, how you articulated uh, previously about, uh, not on this podcast, not on another podcast, about uh, how the links have URIs and RELs. And using those RELs and not being coupled to a specific link uh, allows you to des- design a client a certain way so that it could present an option to go to a link and ignore the ones it doesn't understand. Like, that all made sense, but… When I sat down at, in Visual Studio and I was like, okay, cool. Let me make my evolvable client. I was like, I don't know what to do. Does the book or anything get into like how you would actually build an evolvable client?
1: Yes. I mean, that's a big focus of the book. So I'm sure there will be people that really understand what hypermedia is about that may look at the book and say, oh, I could do this a different way. I could do some pipeline thing, etc." Our goal was not to, to first off prescribe the way even though, unfortunately, no matter what you do, there are people that will say, no, this is the way. But, you know, I, I've, I've since given up trying to change that. Like, it's fine. I know there are people that will be running around with the book and say, Glenn said it. Look, yeah. it's
0: right there. Yeah, I'm working on our G-block architecture post right now. Right? <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> life goes on. But, no, we
0: do, we do show
1: it. And, honestly, it is not magical. You know, so here's the thing. Um, I think sometimes when people hear about something new – often your mind runs wild and you imagine it's like way harder than it really is. Mm -hmm. What we show in the book is more of a pattern, like just a simple way to do it. So what we basically have is we have this resource. uh, The model here is like an API for issue tracking. And it's kind of funny. Since we started doing that, I've noticed a bunch of examples that have started to do that. So I wonder if we've inspired some of that because I've seen like four different media types emerge where they're using like issue tracking as an example. And I know all, I know all the guys. So I'm, I don't know if we did that or not. There's
0: but. going to be an explosion in all the app stores about issue tra- issue tracking, software as a service. Yeah, The app
1: you never, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the hidden app that everybody needs. Right. Um, but uh, aside from that, What we show is that at the end of the day, right, think about it. So you have an API and that API returns something, returns some kind of payload. So if you're going to be doing links, then you're going to have some logic at the point where that object is returned or somewhere near it that is going to then apply some type of logic, which is usually like a state machine that's going to look at some data. Like if it's an order, it may look at that order and say, oh, this order is in a state where it is created. Okay, so these are the links that should be appropriate at that point. So it's as simple as just, you know, if you're doing it from an object-oriented standpoint, you're using a framework like ServiceStack or Web API. you model an object that has a link collection on it, and you write some logic that populates that link collection dynamically based on some state at the time when the thing is returned. Now that, you know, you get into a whole bunch of debates, is that separation of concerns, etc And then you can go from there and start to refactor it. So that's what we did. So one of the things we didn't want you to do is that there's not really great, like ASP.NET Web API has some functions which you can use for like generating URIs, but it relies on routing infrastructure and a bunch of other stuff. And it's kind of ugly code for you to have to write. So we came up with a pattern where we have this thing called a link factory. And that link factory gets injected into the API. So when it wants to generate links, it just hands off the model to the link factory and calls a method on it. And, you know, the links get applied. Um, So that's, that's kind of the idea. As a matter of fact, we came up with a term. And we debated on this a lot. You know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, well, the thing that the API returns is a view model. And... View model is very overloaded in terms of UI context and depending on if you're talking about something like a rich framework like, like Silverlight or WPF with XAML mm-hmm. or MVC view model gets a very different connotation in one, in one case it's like a DTO, in another case it's like an object that's really rich with behavior. And we kind of went back and forth. And I was like, you know, I just don't want to use this term. So instead, when you talk about rest, right, rest really is built around this idea. That your service, you know, your rest is representational state transfer. So what kind of state are you transferring? Well, there's two types of state: there's application state and there's resource state. And generally the differentiation between this is that the resource state is, so if I have an order, the order itself being written out, say to JSON, that JSON representation of the order, I would say that is the resource state. It's a snapshot at a point in time of this order mm-hmm. and then the, where is the application state that's actually the links because based on the state of that order at a point in time and uh, you know there's there's an app there's a there's a flow that you know the idea with apis is there's kind of a flow that you're moving through and each of these flows are different states mm-hmm. so the links then become the state so based on all of that we came up with this term called state model so what we have is a state model factory And if you walk through the dependency graph, it's like the state model factory depends on a link factory. And what the state model factory does is you pass it a model and out comes a state model. And that state model has links on it. And it's not necessarily the same model that was passed in because we want to keep that abstraction. How my business objects are managed and all of that is a completely separate concern from how things are represented over HTP. So we introduced this concept of a state model. We introduced this concept of a state model factory. We introduced a concept of a link factory to make it really easy to manage the links and to reuse those link factories. So now what your code ends up looking like is in the controller action as much, the web API action is, is very lightweight, and it just is going to you know, get the model and then make a call to this Um, state model factory, and it's going to return that thing. And, you know, then all your state logic of which links show up, that all happens within the state model factory. So you have a central place to go, and you can test that thing outside of the context of the controller. You can write unit tests that says that, hey, the state model factory is returning to me, you know, the correct links when I give it a model in this state. So all we've really done, I think, is just created a pattern that can work, that can scale, certainly not the only way that you could do it. But I think at this point, echoing off of what you were saying, there's so many people that have no idea where to start. You know, minimally, if we give people a start point that they feel good about grokking the concepts, and then they throw out what we gave them, but it helps them to make that leap to the next level, I'll be extremely happy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Renat, how does what Glenn just got done describing relate to what you've been building recently? And and does it relate or have nothing to do with each other?
2: Well, it absolutely relates because it's all about basic principles that you apply while building something. And then also a bunch of other principles that you may choose or choose not to apply because it's not worth it. So, for example, for my previous years at Locat, we've been mostly building internal systems uh, for internal APIs. So, uh, things like content negotiation, usage of hypermedia, it wasn't even uh, on the radar simply because it's, well, it's a cool thing to have, but it was much easier to hack both the API and the clients when you need to update something, mm-hmm. when you need to evolve something, as opposed to rolling out this framework for evolution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a really reasonable approach, by the way. I mean, especially if you own the client and the server and you're okay with it, I think there's nothing wrong with that or you have like other the
2: means or authority to change the client or Sure. Clients. and what we're going through at happy pancake website is will actually involve doing more rest simply because the number of clients is going to grow up not only including the browser so basically while we're controlling the browser the web api it's all easy and nice yeah however when we get to the point where we have a bunch of native clients everywhere then that might get tricky. And if it is the case, then it would be worth to augment some of the services that expose there with hypermedia capabilities.
1: Or even if you have other people that are using their browser to access your API, but they're not doing it through your web app.
2: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So basically, usage of hypermedia and, for example, content negotiation to enhance uh, your API, it becomes a valuable asset when you get into the situation where you can't personally or like through emails or somehow control how clients evolve together with the api so basically uh, hypermedia and content negotiation they kind of help to put the primary evolution pain points to force them into the api Mm -hmm. this way the clients they kind of evolve automatically simply because they just keep following the links it kind of enforces the contract on the api and actually, the stuff that we've been doing lately, both at Locat and uh, recently with Head Pancake, was about structuring these APIs and kind of making sure that they have the right granularity, that the URLs and the messages being passed back and forth they make sense. And actually, like when you're designing a valuable API, it just puts more and more design effort into making this API boundary make sense and expose even more information. Then you used to expose from the API so that other clients uh, can hack into that, can play with that, can develop uh, independent clients. And no matter how the backend API evolves, like the clients can stay in sync. And actually, one of the biggest eye-openers for me was how important it is to have an API that is uh, hackable by people. That you can play with the browser, that you can play uh, with uh, all these Chrome developer extensions.
1: Or use Curl.
2: Yeah, Cur- of course. CURL
1: is extremely popular in the API space. Yep. Probably I'd say that CURL
2: is a de facto way to demonstrate how to use an API. Yeah. And you, if you can't use that, then there's probably something wrong with uh, your API.
1: They yeah, it's, it's a good litmus test. Yeah, that's, that's true.
2: And for example, based on that approach, Windows Azure Storage API, especially when you get to, into this weird mix of O data that they use for table storage,
1: you know, I worked on the Azure SDK, right? You don't have to oh, SDK. You didn't <laughs> work on the API, right? I did not work on the API, but we had to deal with consuming it. So that, <laughs> oh. you're preaching, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> we, we we had to write code in Node.js where there was zero support for OData. Oh, okay. um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm yeah, I'm, I'm I did not work on the API. I would not have created such a. Horrendous thing. But anyway, did
0: I say that? Maybe no, I no, you didn't. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool.
1: Get on a very important point, though, which I think when we define in the book Web APIs, we put this on as well. Like a big difference between SOAP APIs and Web APIs is that SOAP APIs were usually designed for more trusted integrations. Um, more machines? Yes. Well, a lot of the SOAP scenarios were more like Kind of trusted integrations. It wasn't. It wasn't just a generally open thing. They used SOAP as a way to transfer information, and you had things like WS Star and all those those other kinds of things. But often you would have like front end systems that talk to back end systems through SOAP. Whereas today, when we look at web APIs, the point that you hit on, which is you suddenly have this open open API that is consumable by anybody, is a big distinction between the two. And I totally agree with what you were saying, which is like the value that hypermedia provides grows significantly as you look at the number of clients that you're creating or that are being created. Even if you're creating them, like if you're creating and you have an iOS client and an Android client and a Win 8 client and a this and a that, there's a cost there. You might decide, even if you own the client's that there is kind of a benefit that hypermedia is providing for you. But certainly, once you get into a place where you now have third parties that are building their own clients that you have no ownership of, I think that is where the most value, which you hit on, so I'm just agreeing with you, um, is, is really going to get received.
2: And I also think SOAP became what it is because it was evolving in a more controlled ecosystem where both servers and clients were mostly on .NET, and there is a tooling in .net that allows you to create this. Uh,
1: Let's not forget Java as well. They had a pretty rich tooling ecosystem around. So okay. So, um,
2: enterprise ecosystem then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. A vendor-based.
1: <laughs> vendor
0: no, it's true. A
1: vendor-based ecosystem. Yeah, you're right. Correct.
0: And just because I'm a stickler for definitions and words myself, as Renat knows, when I rename half of his source code because I want to change a couple of letters, um, could you just clarify for me, Glenn? Because now I've heard hypermedia as a new, better synonym for a REST thing that's proper. What exactly is your definition of hypermedia?
1: That's a good one. I tried to define that in the book as well. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, what hypermedia really is about is that servers return these things called, I like the term that I think Mike Amundsen was the first one to really start using it in the context of hypermedia, but They're called affordances. Um, Affordances are returned from the server. Now, what is an affordance? An affordance is something that the server gives to the client to help it get something done. So the idea of hypermedia is that whenever you make a request to an API, the server is going to embed these affordances or controls. And these controls really come in two forms. They're either links or they're forms. I use the word forms twice, but I don't mean the, you know, the second. So if you take the browser, I think the browser is the best example. I mean, the, the most canonical hypermedia client that is out there, which most people don't even realize is the browser. Mm-hmm. When I make an HTTP request to the server, take, take the traditional. Let's not think about all this really cool JavaScript stuff. Let's just go back to the roots. You have a static web page and that web page comes back and That page is for, say, creating an order. I know I'm going all around, but I'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. So I want to, you know, see some related information about that order. What do I do? I click a link. The server has embedded a link for me that I can follow to get information about that order. If I want to update that order, the server offers me a form. So the difference is that a link is a pure navigation thing. Take me from here to here whereas a form is actually going to send some information. Mm -hmm. Now forms, then there's the question of HTTP methods, like forms can be for get or can be for post. I can have a form which I'm using to search for information. So the thing that the resource that I'm accessing is still idempotent and safe, but I'm sending it some information that it can process to get me some results back, but it's still safe. Or I could have a form That is, you know, updating the state of this order. So what I like to say, like leveling up again, hypermedia, I'll just use the word controls. Hypermedia are a set of controls that a server returns, which are in the form of links and forms, which the client can use to navigate the states of the application.
0: Hmm. Okay, cool. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Does not make sense to you, Renat? Absolutely. I was hoping you'd finally say, no, I have no idea, Carrie." You finally have grasped something that I did not get. No, not happening. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> Based on what I heard
0: Renat say
1: a few minutes ago, I, I highly doubt that was going to yeah. be the response.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not in this podcast. We'll talk about something else. Well,
1: uh, basically, the last time I was hammered
2: for uh, being stupid, and actually it was uh, rightfully so, it was just a few days ago when I mentioned something. Here's an example of microservice I wrote. And then there's the whole bunch of people jumping at me on Twitter saying, hey, that sounds like a service, which <laughs> is of reasonable size. What's the micro part about that?
0: Mm-hmm. I saw that.
2: Yeah, and folks were uh, basically correct because you can't say that the service is micro. You can say that there is a design approach where you try to make your API or a service uh, to be as small as possible while keeping it, the entire system in sane and simple and understandable.
1: And I would argue that's just good API design in general.
2: Yeah, that's a point.
1: (laughs) But but no, so I'm glad we talk about it because I was on that Twitter stream as well. But I I was really just trying to get clarification on what do you mean and how how is that different. But I agree completely with your principles. Um, And I also agree that there's tons of services out there that don't do that. But I don't think we should give them a a distinction because that kind of promotes like, oh, yeah, you could do it this way or do it that way. That's Okay. Mm. I think we should just promote what good design is and people do what they do. But, you know, that's their problem. Uh, basically, uh, after that Twitter stream, we
2: had a discussion back at Happy Pancake, which helped to clarify the approach to this situation. And so the focus of the design of the APIs or like any service-based system here is not the size, but its simplicity. So that it would be simple enough to understand easily, to evolve easily, to reason about that, and do other things with this. And size is merely a heuristic that kind of uh, helps to drive in that direction. Because generally, when things are small, they're kind of simple by default. Although that's not always the case. Because if you break things at size that is too small, then you can get into the such fine-grained details that the entire system turns into the spaghetti or is too chatty, et cetera, et cetera.
1: One of the mistakes people make there, and we talk about this a little bit in the book too, is they, they try to equate a resource with a domain model and mm-hmm. think that, okay, well, you know, I mean, and this is, for people that do DDD and CQRS, they say the same thing. You know, people make this mistake of thinking, well, okay, well, because I have these objects in my system, that's exactly what I need to expose. And, and that's not really true. I mean, to build an API properly, you really have to be thinking about what's the kind of information the client needs? What are the use cases? What are the things they're trying to do? Building it from a, here's the objects we have in our system, I think is an improper approach. They may correlate to some degree. And adding on to what you said, I think it's tough. You need to find that balance. Um, Definitely, if you have services that do a lot, it's going to be hard to evolve them just because, you know, they're, they're very tightly coupled in terms of what they do even. Uh-huh. Um, and I agree with you, two are fine grains. then you have other problems, maintenance problems, and it's even more hard for the client to discover it, and et cetera. So it's a fine art, I think, that you're, you're kind of walking the line. And I think it's still a relatively young art, so there's a lot of learning still going on. Well,
2: it's an evolving field. Yep. Well, as to the problem that the same, for example, <clears throat> domain model that is used in the backend is actually exposed in its entirety to the uh, client by the API. There was a discussion about that. I think it uh, was the last GDD summit, or maybe it happened over and over again. And uh, the idea here is that actually the client view of the system and like the server view of the system, they belong to completely different contexts. Yeah. Uh, when server does something with the data, it's completely different that the client is going to do th- with the data. They have different perspective on different aspects of the model. And because of that, different actually uh, model representations should be passed around where API might serve as a boundary between the contexts, meaning that if you have the same object that is uh, used in your backend server that is actually passed directly to the client, It's either such a strong notion that it exists everywhere without being changed, for example, notion of email, notion of address, or that you're actually uh, crossing the boundaries with something that doesn't make uh, sense.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, And I think that was the whole idea of the state model that we came up with in the book was saying be intentional about what you want to send to your client think about it, tailor it, think about it, you know, and don't give them more than they need to know. Because the other thing is, and this kind of goes back even to programmatic design when we're designing APIs, like once you expose something, it's hard to get rid of it. Uh You know, error towards exposing less of what somebody needs. You can always add more if you need to. Um, But once you put out, when when you start to, you know, reveal everything or or expose too much, you're going to be maintaining that for a long time.
0: And Glenn, when you're thinking about the different perspectives of, you know, the client context versus the server and what each of them needs, does that mean then that your state model and the workflow that you're presenting back to the client is intended to be a good user experience for the client and not necessarily be the workflow as the server sees it? Or should that workflow and state be sort of dictated by the server regardless of what the client may want to do?
1: So so this is another good point to point out about hypermedia because it relates. Hypermedia puts the power actually in the client, not the server. What it does is say that the server's job, so we talked about controls and all of that, and that was a detail. Mm -hmm. But the server's job in a hypermedia system is to give the client options. The client is not dumb. It's dumb about URIs. Maybe it doesn't know how to, it, does, it doesn't have to know how to create URIs because that provides a benefit. Or maybe there's URI templates even, but it can still look at those as a black box thing. But the idea is that the server is saying, Hey client, here's the options that make sense now, but you choose which one you want. So I think that's a very important distinction is mm-hmm. that clients are not dumb. There's just a level of knowledge that is kept with the server. As to the state model idea, it's saying that whatever the server returns should be tailored to the client.
0: I see. Uh-huh. The That's preference. Like that, the
1: preference should be this is going to be done in such a way that it's going to help the client do what it's trying to do, and the decision should not be made based on this makes it easier for us to implement it, or you know, this ties more to our backend. Um, that should not, in my opinion. Be part
2: of the equation. So basically your state model, it actually encourages the separation of contexts, one being server context and one being the client context.
0: 100%. Forces,
1: That's exactly yes. what the goal is.
0: Yeah, it is the translator between those worlds. It, the state model and the, the uh, link factory, I think it was, are the things that are in between those two universes, I guess. And by using those that's how you're basically helping to implement the user side requirements the client side behaviors that are expected by the client you manifest those by translating server api capabilities into client state model and links that will help the client achieve what they want to do
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's that's exactly right you know and and the thing is like these are not new patterns. I mean, we maybe have tailored things a little bit to HTTP. So one of the things I always try to tell people is like when I described early on that idea of separation of concerns and how I could refactor stuff into a factory and all that, I see a web API is really a transition from HTTP to the business domain. And in the implementation of that web API, it can do whatever it wants that relates to that. That is its concern. Like I have people that say, oh, well, links." is a separate concern now you know links could be factored out but in my opinion if you just have code that puts the links on right there you know at the place where that request is handled i think that's absolutely fine because you can almost even think of it as a proxy like the purpose of that code is really to be that transition point that goes either from the domain into http or from http into the domain. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I think about it. And when it does that transfer, yes, it should be thinking. I mean, you could even imagine situations where depending on which client has come at me, and I may know some information based on a query string or whatever whatever state is passed to me, I can tailor that. I could give them a different state model. You know, I can say, well, I know that you're a user with such and such profiles, so I'm going to give you a completely different state model. And and that is a place where, by the way, web APIs tend to differ dramatically from SOAP because so much of SOAP, at least when you use the tooling, is so much based on RPC where it's like, I'm calling a method and that method is going to give me this static object. I can't Mm -hmm. completely change it and say that based on it being this person, I give them this and based... I have to, you know, I can try to create like an uber object that carries everything, but that's not friendly and it's ugly and it's, it's horrible to maintain. But with web APIs, you've got full flexibility. I can return 50 different models from my API or, or represent. I mean, let's call it what it is from an HTTP perspective. I can c- return lots of different representations. I have full flexibility to do that. And I should, if it makes sense.
0: It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know we're running long here, Glenn, because the time and everything, but the other thing that may or may not be in the book that always is the thing that I run into when I'm trying to just finally finish something is I never – I'm able to find clear guidance on, okay, so I have my iPhone app, I punch you out to Azure Mobile Services to authenticate with some social identity provider, it hands me back a string, it hands me back a token, now what's the secure way for me, like, do I just do that over SSL, or am I authenticating back with my API, and what does Web API do or not do to help me deal with knowing that it's actually the right user authenticating in my API, like, how does that authentication play into this story, if at all?
1: That's a good question. I mean, there are plugins for Web API to do like, you know, one of the most popular API authentication mechanisms up until now has been HTTP basic over, oh. H, you know, basic auth mm-hmm. over HTTPS. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay, that works. Yeah, I mean, it works. It's secure in terms of the transmission because HTTPS is secure. It's not token based, it has tons of limitations with it, but there's still a lot of APIs, simple APIs that that's what they choose to do. You know, now there's been a lot of evolution, things like OAuth happening. Web API has done a lot of work in the last couple of versions to make it more easy for you to set up your API as being like an OAuth server, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You can use mobile services as well. You can basically – I was doing some prototyping on this when I was on the team – Um, And I think they were supposed to put some guidance out on how to do that. The way mobile services work is you authenticate against a mobile service and it gives you back a token. Mm -hmm. So you utilize mobile services to do some authentication using Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And when it's done, once it's authenticated, it creates a token. So you can design web APIs with ASP.NET Web API if you wanted to that recognize that token. Like that token has has a format where when that token is created, which is a job token, um, mobile services has this master key that when you create a mobile service, you have a master key. Mm-hmm. And as long as your web API has that master key, it can rip open that token and see who that user is. So you definitely can do that. I don't know if there's been enough guidance out there yet on how you could do that. So I would say that both things are possible. You can either use web API now to spin up your own OAuth server. Because mm-hmm. OAuth is not by any means a simple protocol. Anybody who tells you mm-hmm. that has not looked at it and is just lying. Um mm-hmm. and, and and one of the problems with the OAuth spec is there's just so many gaps. There's so many things that are just like, and the spec doesn't cover this, and the spec doesn't cover this, and you need to figure it out. And that's why, you know, if you use like Facebook or you use Twitter or you use Google, they're completely different. Like there's some similarity there in the sense that it's OAuth, but there's there's so many things that are not clearly defined in the spec that it's just yeah I mean it's it, it's not a pretty place mm-hmm. um, but Web API does have the support for spinning up a OAuth server
0: but if I'm cheating using mobile services and I let's say my app only cares that when Glenn authenticates with Twitter yep I get a unique string back from my app all I would need to do I think is as long as I send that over SSL to my app and say I got this string, and the only way I can get this string is because Glenn authenticated. Am I good? Or am I- so if you're doing
1: the Twitter, if you're doing the thing that I was describing to you, it's done in a secure manner because you're using mobile services to log you in, say to Facebook, yes, and then it's going to give you back a JWT token that it creates, mm-hmm. which is signed with this master key, yes, um, that is not easily reproducible. And then your client is going to send that up to your Web API and your Web API is going to have a message handler in its pipeline, which is going to then look for that. That actually gets passed in a header. Mm -hmm. That job token gets passed in a header. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to use the master key to rip open that token and say, oh, that's you. That's your, you know, that's your ID or your name or whatever the case may be. So that actually works very securely. And I was doing a bunch of work prototyping on that with Dan Roth before I left Microsoft, I don't know what they've done with it if the guidance has come out on how to use it because the nice thing about doing that approach is you don't have to spin up your own separate OAuth server.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas if you go the web API route, like it generates it for you, but you still have code you have to worry about. I see. But it's secure. The, the HTTP basic thing is more like I just have an API and I make it support basic auth over HP, I, I, basic auth is a very simple protocol to implement, right? I mean, it's, it's really simple because it's clear text, right? It's like user <laughs> colon password. It's, it doesn't get much simpler than that. <laughs> yeah. So it's real easy to implement, um, and that's why people do it. And HTTPS is secure. But it's not as nice as doing something like a token because the difference is when you do basic auth, you're sending your username and password to the server. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you do something like OAuth, you're actually not sending your username and password directly to the service you're trying to access. You're sending it to a third party. I see. That's the huge difference between the two.
0: Cool. Thank you. So Renat or Glenn, is there any other like major category of the book or HTTP design or REST or anything that... You guys were hoping we were actually going to talk about one way or the other that we didn't actually say anything about.
1: I mean, the one thing I think that's interesting that's happening now is there's a lot. There's starting to be a lot of energy about how to be more descriptive with APIs, basically having mechanisms that can describe what an API has to offer, and those run the gamut in mm-hmm. terms of you know how I would say HTTP friendly slash non RPC they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are services like Swagger, for example, which is kind of like giving you like a directory of the APIs that are available. It will, it's very, I feel it's very kind of URI based. Mm -hmm. Um, it's an easy way to say, Hey, if I just want to give people a directory of my APIs, here it is. And I think it makes it easier for people to grok because it's simple to digest. But then there's other approaches like what the API area guys are doing with Blueprint that are trying to really get more about resources. And, and there's been a ton of discussion, which I was one of the people that was having with them about can you support hypermedia? And so I think it's just interesting that an emerging trend that is starting to gain traction. I'm interested to know what Renat thinks about this is around okay, so we buy into this idea of doing APIs, how do we describe them in a way that is not violating any tenants of HTTP, etc., not creating more pain than it's worth, but that is also not leaving the client to just have to read a spec to figure out what's going on. And so that's an emerging trend that I think you're going to start to see more and more happening around.
0: Have you been exposed to any of that, Renat? Like other than service stack auto-generated docs or manually typing up documentation of an API, have you had any exposure to the stuff Glenn's talking about?
2: Well, I don't think that the industry can actually do much better than this approach. Because we either have something that is uh, human-typed or something that is machine-generated. And if it's machine-generated, usually it's more tailored for uh, machine consumption. And I don't think that in terms of learning about uh, the web APIs, there is anything better than just a human-readable documentation, for example that provides the high-level outline of which services are available and what are they generally supposed to do, how they work together, how they are supposed to fit together in a single model with probably a links where it makes sense to actual uh, machine-generated documentation.
1: I mean, one of the things that's interesting, so, the, so Office Link created an API called UCWA, Unified oh. Communication Web API, I think is what it means, and they basically used a variant of HAL, the hypermedia mm-hmm. application language. Mm-hmm. And so all their documentation is actually around the links and the RELs, not the URIs. And it's pretty interesting. You can you can basically navigate the documentation the same way you would navigate the API. And you can nice. say that okay right. I go here and I get back some documentation like and then it has within it, you know, it says okay if you access this resource this is what the payload might look like, and these are the available, you know, the links that may be present. And then I can click on the link and it takes me to another document. So okay. <laughs> if you go to this resource, this is what the resource is for. And it's it's a pretty interesting approach. What API Area is trying to do is go further than that though. They're mm-hmm. they're actually trying to go off into that space that was a big pain point with SOAP around code gener- you know, generation of clients and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're trying to say, like, can we generate a client that is not RPC, but, you know, that, that kind of even can work with a hypermedia system. And I know Mike Eminson, who's a big proponent of hypermedia, really is a fan of this happening. Like, he thinks the old approaches of how we've done things are not the way to get there. But mm-hmm. possibly, if we can document the right things, which is not the URLs, but really kind of the, the format of the data and what are the links that may be within, then maybe there's something we can do there. Also, using things like API ARI will generate documentation for you. So you can think of it as like you're writing the docs. Think of a DSL where you can express the same thing, and it will generate for you Jekyll pages or something like that. So I just think it's interesting, the energy that's going on. And, and, and one of the things they want to do, which I think is really interesting, is they have this, you know, the Blueprint guys, which is API ARI they have this thing called DRED, D-R-E-D-D, like from Judge Dread. And what it does is given an API area doc, it will test your API and validate that it's doing the things it's supposed to do. Now, I'm still skeptical of whether that can work or not, but I still think this kind of work is interesting, and it means uh-huh. that people are starting to go look beyond just grokking, like, what is an API? So I think that's attractive.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, and I guess since there are number of API clients and service is increasing because we have more and more mobile things, plus there will be this uh, Internet of Things. So the problem of or challenge of integrating things will be brought to a new scale, and because of that, there will be better more more need of how to transfer the knowledge of the APIs and how to evolve them.
1: I think that's like, true. More... And I think a challenge we have now, like you're a really smart guy and I'm I'm listening to stuff that you're saying, is that hypermedia is still not easy for somebody Mm -hmm. to just get. And when you build a hypermedia system, and I tried to point this out in the book, which I think you're seeing, you still have a lot of work to do. And if you really get what it's about and you really see that the value proposition is there, you may do it. But as long as that curve is so steep or that ramp is so, maybe it's not a curve, as long as that ramp is so steep, it's going to be much harder to be generally adopted. And, and I think that's where these kind of things are coming into, is trying to say, like, can we reduce that ramp? Can we make it less steep? Because pretty much all the people I know that are doing hypermedia have become, like, experts in HTTP. And if that's what you need to do, I think that's a problem.
2: <laughs> well, everything, I guess, uh, shows up by comparison. For example, compare it to SOAP or yeah. ws stuff. I guess it's uh, the simplicity would become more apparent as this entire area of api and integration evolves and maybe somebody uh, like Google comes up with new concepts or ways of explaining and describing things that make it much easier for people to understand how this works and how and why this works. For example, yeah. this state model thing. It actually yeah. first of all it helps to see how things are working but more than that it forces developers to actually think wait take a pause there and say okay so there is one thing that comes uh, to me from the domain but i'm forced to actually return something different i'm forced to think that this something that is going to be returned it has to be adapted to the client so it's not exactly the domain object uh, that i got yeah so basically it's it's not only the way of thinking but it's also way of forcing people into think that think yeah. about that
0: it's books like this and that those common patterns that we can all agree on the definition and agree on the vocabulary words to speak about it in a non-ambiguous way that leads to the next level of understanding to make this stuff easier. Like without these kinds of things and patterns and vocabulary words for, for everyone to be using in a consistent way, it's, it's sort of challenging to <laughs> all work together to build the next thing that's easier than becoming an HTTP expert to do this stuff.
1: You know, and let's not reject tooling. Like, I think that tooling plays a big part. Now, tooling, I'll put it in quotes because there's a big spectrum of what tooling is. I'm not talking about drag and drop. But, you know, the reality of it is today you've got to do it all yourself. Um, and, I mean, there are some libraries that are emerging, um, like Mark Seaman has a library uh, for, for for linking um, that helps with doing some hyperlinks based on, you know, it uses... Um, like Lambda expressions where you can like supply a controller and it will call a method and it will generate the appropriate link. And you know, I think that having, having some more mature infrastructure that people can just say, okay, well, I don't have to learn everything. I don't have to implement it all myself would be very useful. And I think that's going to come. It's going to come naturally out of all the work that is happening.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Glenn, for guys like me that want to run out and buy this book, is there a preferred location, a link we should be using to go get it? Do you care where we get it? What's the best deal? Well, you? so
1: you can read it for free right now <laughs> online. Oh, okay. Um, so the, we have a site. It's called it was WebAPIBook.net. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, And if you go there and you bring that up, you'll see that there's a link to where you can buy the book and there's a link to where you can read it online for free. Just plugging O'Reilly, they have kind of this really cool model now where all the content we've been developing is developed on a Git repo, not on GitHub. And as we've been developing it, we can just push it out to this web portal where people can read it for free and they can comment. You know, we're now actually going to publish the book. And I think the web portal will still stay out there. Of course, the advantage of buying the book is you can carry it with you or or you can get an ebook, uh, you know, like uh, download it to your iPad or whatever. This is only giving you the web version on web pages, but it is available from webapibook.net. and it will if if you, and if you follow that bottom link, you can go to the purchase page for the book. And again, just to remove any like, you know, people who look at the book we are not at all proposing that this is the only way to do this. So I know there's going to be some people are going to read this and be like, why are you showing me to do it this way? I could do this all with a message handler. I could do it all this way. It's like that is missing the point. The point is to fill a void that there's today like zero knowledge in many places. And let's just give something that we can start the conversation on and that can help people get going.
0: Yep, because at least coming from someone with less experience in implementing these things, I'd rather start with someone prescribing like, hey, I kind of know what I'm talking about. I've been studying this the last four years. Start here. It won't suck that bad. And when you're smart enough to know why this isn't perfect for everything, good. But it's better than having nothing. So I appreciate the book, and I'm not going to be uh, telling you that uh, why are you prescribing things to me. You advanced types can argue about that stuff on Twitter, and I'll just watch and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, it's funny that you say that, though, but my And this really has been an adventure and a learning experience for me, you know, undoing my own kind of misnomers about what REST was and what HTTP was and and really – and and at the time when when I first started learning about it, you know, Microsoft didn't have a good reputation in this space at all. (laughs) Um, uh-huh. and people were really welcoming you know they didn't shut me out and they they spent a lot of time people like Mike Amundsen and Jan Ogermysen and Daryl Miller and Mike Kelly and all these guys really really helped me to to learn what this is about so me doing this book had a real symbolism behind it of and, and just um, kind of really good to give back like my own learning um, and say well you know just a chance to really share that with other people so that they can benefit from my own kind of four-year journey but it certainly wasn't perfect and you know again take it for what it's worth
0: thank you this is your first book isn't it it is my first of three attempts (laughs) (laughs) congratulations on your first book and congratulations on finishing it because that's probably the hardest part so thank you very much for the book and for your time today Guys, we are at beingtheworst.com, so leave your questions and comments there. We're at beingtheworst on Twitter. Glenn, you're at gblock, even though everyone listening probably already follows you. And uh, I think that will probably do it. Any last parting words, guys?
1: Well, first, I just want to say it was really great, Renat, to finally get a chance to talk with you. And I look forward to talking with you more in the future. And thank you guys for having me on the show And the other thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid. Like when you hear terms like hypermedia, it's just a term. Don't be afraid of it. And it's actually like the concept itself is probably a lot easier than you think. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you look at our book and like we're not the only one, you know, you'll see a path for how to get there.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that'll do it, guys. Renat, you going to go wake up now?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, I already woke up (laughs) like a few minutes ago.
0: (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Nice. All right, guys. Well, uh, until next time, we'll see you then. And maybe uh, when Glenn's writing his second book or when I've uh, invented the new way to document HTTP APIs in five years, we'll have Glenn back on and say, remember when you said we needed this man? Well, I figured it out because of your book. You're welcome. Please don't talk to
1: me about a second book. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. It was a harrowing experience. I don't know if I'll be doing it again, but, but. but I am glad well,
2: to have done it. <laughs> based of, on what uh, I've heard from uh, other folks, for example, in the D community, it feels like they're like drug addicts. Like when they're finishing the book, they say never again. And then if you wait for a few years, <laughs> year, I'm working on a draft.
1: You know, that's so, what, so, so Mike Emmonson is a good friend and he's like a machine. He cracks out books for O'Reilly like nothing. And I, he's telling me the same thing. He's like, this is the first of many. I was like, no, it's not. He's like, yes, it is. I, like, I don't want to think about that now. I'm going to go play EVE online. I don't want to think about it. You know, one of the things that was really cool was just that we were very different kinds of personalities But we all knew each other really around, like, Web API. Some of the people that worked on the book were already into kind of this space. Some of them got dragged into it based on being involved with Web API. And it's got a good mix of people that were in Microsoft and people that were outside Microsoft. But the other thing which made it an interesting challenge is we were in four Uh. different countries. So, like, Howard Durking and I were in the U.S. And then we had Daryl Miller was in Canada, and we had... Pablo Sobraros in South America somewhere. And then we had Pedro Felix in Spain. So we all collaborated over Skype. It was a pretty amazing collaboration. And we all like each other, even after working with each other for 18 months. So that was, it was, it was pretty intense, but cool. But it was, it was tough.